This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I read in the Cleveland scene yesterday that the eternal Rick Jackson is retiring at IdeaStream. That's a sad day for Cleveland journalism. He's probably the hardest working journalist I've ever known. Cleveland's going to miss him. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with our State House and Politics Editor, Rick Ruan, City Hall Reporter, Courtney Astolfi, and our podcast regular, Lisa Garvin. Lisa, Rick is very much cut from the same cloth as you. He is a longtime radio reporter. I worked with him for nine years on their Friday roundtable, and he has the same dedication to the detail that you've shown throughout doing this podcast. I don't know that you've probably ever met him because you haven't been back long enough. No, no, I haven't. But it's good to hear another radio journalist on the podcast, and I won't have to correct his pronunciation. <laughs> he look, he's just he's he's terrific. I mean, I I I'm in awe of the guy. Um, what's amazing is, apart from his news side, he's done some children's show for years. So when he's out in public kids and you know young adults mob him because of the children's show <laughs> and you forget he had a whole career before he got here my wife and i were watching a netflix documentary on beanie babies a year or two ago our kids had millions of those things when they were young and up pops rick jackson as an anchor in north carolina talking to some nut that thought they could make millions of dollars off of beanie babies i mean <laughs> he's just been around a long time and he's great so we'll all be diminished with his June retirement, which is well-deserved. We wish him well. Let's begin. Ohio lawmakers want to prop up the state budget by allowing oil and gas drilling under state parks. And now we have an idea of what that could be worth. What is the whopping sum Ohio could realize in just one park, Rick? How about $1.8 billion? It's billion with a B. Uh, that's what a Texas-based drilling company offered Ohio over a period of more than 15 years to drill for natural gas uh, and oil under Salt Fork State Park in Southeast Ohio. Uh, Encino Energy made the offer late last year just as state lawmakers passed a bill that was meant to accelerate efforts to frack state parks. So the, the money would come in the form of a $115, excuse me, $115 million signing bonus, plus a 20% royalty on natural gas uh, that they would take from uh, underneath Salt Fork. So if you take that out through 2041, Encino estimates it would total the $1.8 billion. So these numbers and other interesting details were all outlined in some documents that Jake Zuckerman obtained from the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. Uh, it's important to note that the lease was rejected. So the state is still trying to sort out its rules for fracking state parks. And Governor Mike DeWine's administration has essentially told the drillers, hey, you know, wait until we figure this out. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they rejected this lease, uh, which suggests that they're, they're not going to accept others at the moment. But 
it's a pretty interesting look into the sort of revenue potential within state parks if Encino's estimates are accurate. Salt Fork's the largest state park, but there would be some other opportunities to frack parks parks that sit on top of shale formations, mostly in eastern Ohio. Encino claims it would produce 69 million barrels of oil and 375 billion cubic feet of natural gas over 18 years from the park. The question, though, is, you know, what are you giving up? Encino's lease proposal vowed that it wouldn't have any surface disruptions inside the park, but a map included in the documents show uh, a lot of well pads on private property just outside the park. And any time that you start drilling for natural gas and oil, it's going to require require other infrastructure, access roads, pipelines, other pieces that you know might potentially disrupt the natural beauty. And of course, there's a pretty significant question about the contribution to climate change here. Even though Ohio now considers natural <laughs> gas to be green energy, it's a greenhouse right. gas producing fossil fuel. And there's a certain irony in taking it from. Yeah, and we talked park. last week about the truck traffic. I, I know we've talked about fracking for probably 15 years. It's been a big subject in Ohio and we've been told there's a lot down there, but this drives home, but just how much there is to pull out of the ground in Ohio. It's a staggering sum of money and would go far to prop up the state budget. Uh, it's an interesting debate. It's also interesting that the DeWine administration is moving slowly because who wants to drive into a state park? Like I said last week, if it feels like you're driving on the North Jersey Turnpike. But interesting. He had a fight for these records too, right? They didn't come easily. Yeah, that's right. So Jake has been doing some uh, really good reporting on uh, sort of different aspects of this that have given us uh, little windows into uh, what fracking in state parks might look like. But I would say that um, this story is, you know, sort of kicking down the door a little bit to, to give us the, the best look yet. Uh, and it, it required, you know, a, a little bit of pushing to, to get this information. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the, you mentioned uh, that the DeWine administration is taking this kind of slowly. Uh, that's sort of at odds with what the state legislature did late last year. They, when they passed the natural gases, green energy bill, uh, it included a change that also was meant to accelerate this process of fracking in state parks. There's been a law on the books since 2011, I believe. And uh, it, the, the group that is supposed to come up with these rules has essentially been slow walking it for uh, a number of years. And uh, some state lawmakers ultimately said that uh, we need to get this off the ground. And so they, they made this change to uh, sort of light a fire under it. Uh, but the, the administration does seem to still uh, be trying to take its time, relatively speaking. The The story says that they're expecting rules to be done in, in the neighborhood of about six okay. weeks. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb has some dramatic plans in his latest round of ARPA spending. That's the American Rescue Plan. Each one of his ideas could merit a separate discussion. Courtney, it seems like in his second year, Bibb is starting to demonstrate what his vision is for the city. What are some of the highlights here? Yeah, we, we got this big batch of projects Bib wants to use. Basically, this is the last big remaining chunk of the city's ARPA allocation. And we now see how Bib wants to, to move that money forward. At the same time, city council yesterday 
rolled out competing proposals for much of this money. So we're going to have to see where these plans go and how they reconcile things. But on on Bib's side, I think one of the most striking proposals here involves some $50 million he wants to put towards site assembly. He's calling it a development trust, basically site assembly and brownfield remediation across the city. And and the goal here is to assemble tracts of land, 10 acres, 20 acres, and hopefully a few 50-acre parcels, piece these pieces of land together, clean it up, get it ready for good uh, paying jobs. Basically, the goal here is to bring employers into Cleveland have land for them to come to and and make it easier to bring jobs to the people and people to the jobs, you know, connect Clevelanders with jobs right in their neighborhood. Public entities own about a quarter of the vacant land in Cleveland. Now, you can imagine a lot of that came through land bank efforts following the Great Recession and the housing crisis over a decade ago. But, you know, a quarter of the city is publicly owned and they want to start strategically putting these pieces together to attract I don't know if it would be quite Intel level projects here, but they do want some big parcels to bring in big employers. Well, we, we've heard it over and over again that when the employers want to come, they want the land ready to go. Cleveland has all the land, but none of it really is ready to go. Investing this kind of money, and, and my bet is that the state would kick in some too, because Mike DeWine and John Houston are very focused on this kind of thing, even if it's the big city and, you know, we know how Columbus treats big cities. This is a difference maker. This is a true vision for getting some things done. I'm, I'm impressed with this one. This, this of all the things he's come up with to increase the, the ability to generate revenue in the city is, is a big one. What's another highlight? Oh, man, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I'll I'll quickly run through a couple. He wants to put $15 million towards a violence prevention endowment. Basically, you'd give that money to the Cleveland Foundation, and city officials would sit on the board and help decide grant-making. But but this money would roll out in pieces every year for the coming couple decades. And it's, it's like a dedicated stream of money that can be put annually to violence prevention efforts, no matter what else is going on in the Cleveland budget. And then $30 million he wants to put down for what he's calling back to the basics. This would be equivalent to about a year's worth of the city's usual capital spending. It would be an infusion of federal money to pay for things like street resurfacing, redoing some parks, uh, new updated traffic signals along three dangerous corridors, 150 speed tables to slow drivers down, traffic circles, modular bus stops, flashing lights at school zones. So a big infusion that way. And I guess, you know, I'd be remiss. He's he's looking to put $15 million towards reviving largely commercial corridors on the southeast side, which is, as we know, a big part of his campaign promises is to focus investment there. And then $10 million in in down payment assistance for the the so-called middle neighborhoods of the city, which are the ones kind of on the outskirts and you know, they believe they can they can help people buy homes in middle neighborhoods. That that one's huge. That that could be a big difference maker. He did the his first state of the city last year, about three four months after he had started. So that's hard to really articulate a vision because you're still drinking from the fire hose. I'm sure he's going to lay all of this out next week in his second state of the city. But it does feel like in his second year. He's getting some traction. He's moving forward. He reorganized City Hall. Things have been going pretty well. And these are big ideas. And, you know, when you're a new mayor, 
you got to do those early so that they can come to fruition when you want to run for reelection. Well, like like I said, we're going to have to see um, how the, the, this does seem like an impressive list of projects. But like I said, we're going to have to see how this intersects with what city council wants to do with the money. So so yesterday, Blaine Griffin proposed $60 million for transformative neighborhood projects in distressed parts of the city and about another $50 million for housing. And that would be on top of $50 million the city already allocated to housing from ARPA dollars several months ago. So we've got Bibb's proposal here, which touches on a lot of big different things, including a lot of money for the waterfront, which we didn't even get into, versus Griffin's proposal of, of really another big focus on on housing, fifty million more towards housing, and sixty million in unspecified neighborhood projects. So I'm really curious to see how the legislative and administrative branch mold these two proposals together, and what Clevelanders get out of it. it will be. I'll, I'll I'll bet they come to a decent accommodation. We will be talking about the waterfront idea tomorrow. We got a packed podcast today; couldn't fit everything in. So check back tomorrow on today in Ohio. One of the nice things about them is they are quieter. What is in it for you if you quit your gas-guzzling, air-polluting lawnmower for a battery-powered model? I mean, Lisa, besides saving the planet. So the Cleveland Health Department is offering $100 Visa cards as rebates for people who switch to battery-powered lawnmowers. There are 500 rebates available. So far this year, 115 people have registered, but only 15 have provided the required documentation. And you do have to do a couple of things. You do have to provide a proof of purchase for the new electric-powered mower. You also have to have proof from a Yard that you discarded your gas-powered lawnmower there. Um, mowers purchased after April 25th, 2022 qualify for this rebate. There's only one rebate or one business per household or one rebate per business or household. So electric mowers are slightly more expensive. They typically run $300 to $700, but uh, clevelandhealth.org website has a buying guide and they also have a list of scrapyards to take your old mower. They have $50,000 for the program this year. And this actually came from the Volkswagen lawsuit, wherein they were, it was found that they manipulated the software to mask the CO2 emissions of their vehicles. And this is the second year for the program. When the electric battery-powered electric motors first came out, I thought there's no way you could use them in this time of the year when the grass is growing at the most rapid rate. It's, it's like mowing a hayfield. But in recent years, I've watched people that have them just plowing it down they've become so powerful and so effective and it's so nice that they're quieter you know you don't have mm -hmm. the like gas-powered noise in your neighborhood like you do in leaf blower season uh, it's a cool program by the health department we've given the health department holy hell because of how badly <laughs> they communicated during the pandemic this is a major positive for improving health in cleveland way to go check out the story for the details it's on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We just talked about Jim Jordan and whether he's doing political theater yesterday. And then yesterday he announces he's going to the city of big theater. 
Rick, why is Jordan heading to New York for one of his hearings? Well, Jim Jordan has been taking a show on the road a, a lot this year. After uh, going to Arizona to visit the southern border in February, he's now planning to hold a field hearing in New York next week. And this is all about the historic criminal charges levied by a New York prosecutor against former President Donald Trump. Uh, Jordan is one of Trump's most strident allies in Congress, so he's using his platform to defend Trump in pretty strong terms. In New York, he's planning to have a House Judiciary Committee hearing on what he describes as, quote, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's pro-crime anti-victim policies that he claims have led to more violent crime and danger for New York residents. So Bragg is the, the DA who charged Trump for falsifying business records to conceal the hush money payments, uh, totaling about $130,000 to Stormy Daniels. And Jordan's field hearing is just the latest effort he's made to attack the local prosecutor. He's uh, subpoenaed former uh, workers in the prosecutor's office who oversaw the investigation and threatened to bring some legislation that would prevent state and local prosecutors from uh, uh, charging presidents. Uh, experts have told us that that doesn't really stand much of a chance, but uh, he has uh, proposed it. So is it theater? Uh, as we discussed yesterday, Jordan says that's not really his aim, but Bragg did call it a political stunt, and he claimed that New York is the safest big city in America. One funny note on Bragg's response, though, he compared New York's murder rate in his first year to Columbus, saying it was three times higher here. But that's not Jordan's district. It's represented by Joyce Beatty, <laughs> a Democrat. Uh, what, what's interesting about this, the the far right has tried to, to, I don't know, build on the rural urban divide. And so when when Marjorie Taylor Greene went to New York, when Trump was being uh, arrested, she came back and said, oh, it's a horrible place. It's a horrible place. There's a real effort being made to portray the cities as this lawless, horrible place, which has an element of racism because the cities have higher proportions of black residents than the rural. That's that. If that's part of what's going on here, it really is a despicable thing to try and build that rural urban divide instead of trying to unite. And it seems like we're seeing more and more of it in the past year or two. Well, he's definitely a proud culture warrior, so, you know, he doesn't shy. But, you know, people forget that it was a 12-person or 24-person grand jury that indicted Trump. You know, it wasn't so they're trying to pin it on a black, you know, prosecutor when it's the grand jury who saw the evidence and said, let's indict. Although we've often written that you can indict a, a ham sandwich. Prosecutors have a great sway with grand juries. We've done some stories over the years about whether the grand jury system has outlived its usefulness. How, how rarely is does it happen that a grand jury doesn't do what a prosecutor leads them to do? Yeah, and... Uh and, and I, I hear what you're saying, Chris, but I, it, there's, you know, sort of a fine line between, um, you know, whether this is a, um, an, an attempt to uh, drive that wedge further in the rural urban uh, divide uh, versus whether this is just another attack on Bragg's uh, credibility uh, personally, that that's what a lot of what uh, the, the fight with Jim Jordan has been about to, to this point is attacking the investigation, attacking Bragg. Um, so I, I'm not sure if if this is about you know getting people sort of whipped up about um, you know the these awful cities, or is it just about trying to make Bragg look bad again? Good point. You're listening to today in Ohio. 
What can Cleveland expect to happen after it modernizes its parking meters based on the experience of most major cities, which modernized long ago? Courtney, you wrote a delightful, informative story about this with a bunch of interesting elements, not least of which is we can expect to pay parking in Cleveland streets after six o'clock and on weekends. But what what will happen once we get these intelligent meters in place? Yeah, thank thank you. This is a fun story to report. You know, I talked to folks in Columbus, Detroit, Pittsburgh, and just tried to get really a sense of what happens when smart meters come in out with the old coin only meters. The one nice thing here is Cleveland is so behind the ball, so many years behind other cities, most of which made this move years ago, that we can look at them for lessons learned, right? So one thing that was apparent here is that City Hall is going to be getting much more money from, from drivers through this modernization of its parking meters. One thing that pretty much universally happens when new meters go in is cities take that opportunity to revamp their parking policies and, you know, modernize it, bring it up to current practices. And that's going to happen in Cleveland too. You know, we don't know how much yet, but parking rates hourly are going to go up. Right now they they range up to a dollar throughout the city. We don't know how much they're going to go up, but but Bibb's spokeswoman said that they will likely be going up at, at, in some degree. We're also, like you said, likely to see extended parking enforcement hours. So right now, cut off at the end of the workday, and then it's free parking in the evening in downtown and in various neighborhoods that have these meters. We're likely to see those hours extended through Friday nights and then probably, you know, Saturday and into Saturday nights to capture people parking when they go out to restaurants, go grab a drink, a shop, you know, whatever it may be, they want to capture that revenue. And there's a need to keep cars turning at that point in the night too. You want to encourage commerce and more people coming and going. You know, another change that I think is interesting that's likely coming to Cleveland as part of this is special event parking. With these smart meters, there's the ability to change the fees they charge per hour on demand. So if there's a need for for more dynamic pricing, like there's a big Browns game and you want to up the hourly fees downtown, the city will have the ability to do that and they likely will be doing that in the future. I I have a question about that one that when I read your story. So what if I show up at four o'clock I feed the meter for two hours, but then they raise the price at five o'clock. Does that cut the amount of time I have without me knowing? Or what do I get the amount of time I paid for when I paid for it? That's a good question. I, I don't know how that works. And a lot of these decisions and things like that will have to be done on the policy level. So the city is going to have to consider the pros and cons and way confusing things like that as it figures out what the parameters are going forward. This this will probably be a big debate, I imagine. But well, as the long timer on this podcast, I can tell you that twenty years ago there was a move to extend the paid parking to I think ten o'clock and on weekends. Joe Simperman was a councilman at the time, and he said restaurant workers were parking at the meter spaces after six o'clock and leaving no room for diners. This thing went to hearings. Zach Reed was against it. And ultimately, Frank Jackson, as city council president, stopped it because he didn't want to dun people for additional money. He thought it would be onerous. It's also kind of a point of pride that Cleveland's a city where you can park for free after six o'clock and on the weekends. 20 years later, 
what will the council say? What will they, will they be in favor of this? Will they think this is a good revenue generator? I don't know. Yeah. And, and to look to other cities, we saw Detroit, Columbus, Pittsburgh, when they all brought in new meters, they enacted policies like this, you know, and, and they've earned many millions of dollars more. So Bib has been focused on bringing more revenue into City Hall, modernizing fees and, and getting them up more in line with what's acceptable today. So it wouldn't surprise me if the city does move in a lot of these directions. The biggest surprise in your story for me was how much less parking revenue Cleveland got gets before these new meters come in compared to what the other cities were getting before the meters came in. I mean, it's almost a third, I think, of what what the others are getting. And I, I suspect it's because of that night and weekend thing. Your story's great. It was on Cleveland.com. It's on there now. And I think it's running in the plane dealer tomorrow. Make sure you check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, it's that time of the year when we talk about tax filing and lots of people like me are dreading one aspect of it. Municipal income tax filing. Why does Sean McDonald warn about the hassle involved? And of course, you give this story to the retiree who doesn't understand Rita and doesn't have to pay it. But I'll try to work it out. So anyway, um, you know, Sean McDonald posed the question, is it worth it to request a refund, you know, if your taxes were withheld in another city while you were working from home? And he says, it's not going to be easy, but it's worth the trouble if you're going to be working from home indefinitely and your employer is not withholding your taxes correctly. So employers take about one to 3% of your paycheck to pay for municipal income taxes. Pre-pandemic, 100% of that went to one city for most people where people were working. But for hybrid workers, it's two cities. So some employers were still withholding from their office location, even though the worker was not there. So Executive Director Amy Arigi uh, of, of Rita said, you know, they should be withheld from the city where the work is done. And so, you know, that's been kind of the point of the controversy over these refunds. So Sean McDonald said he moved from Cuyahoga Falls to Berea in 2021. They both have a 2%, you know, tax, but Berea doesn't fully credit taxes paid elsewhere. Uh, his employer, being y'all, moved from Cleveland to Brooklyn, which is a Rita city, and he started fully remote, you know, and now, he, now he's up to three times a week at uh, the Tiedemann Road plant. So he said that the refunds from Cleveland and Brooklyn saved him $300 on municipal tax bill. So that's about 20% of his bill. He expects to save about $220 next year. But he warns there's a lot of math. His tax situation involved four municipalities, and that was 12 hours filling out those two refunds, barely enough to be worth it. But he said only two cities next year, so he'll just file one form, and that will be about a two-hour job. So he said, if you plan to work from home for the foreseeable future, it's worth it to chase those refunds. Yeah, I've overpaid in three cities this year. I'm dreading it. I have to do it this weekend. He does lay it out in a clear fashion. You can find his story on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do we know about the reasons that Bioenterprise Incorporated, an incubator for businesses in the biotech and healthcare industry, shutting down? This was once hailed as a key to the future. Rick, what do we know? Well, to the point, we don't know a whole lot. So on Monday afternoon, Case Western Reserve University, the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, University Hospitals jointly announced that they were shutting down BioEnterprise, Inc. 
And together, those groups launched the incubator more than 20 years ago, but it's still unclear exactly why it was shutting down. The groups didn't reveal much beyond their initial announcement and said that some of what the incubator was supposed to do happens organically in the greater Cleveland area. So when it opened in 2002, the goal was to form, attract, and accelerate the growth of bioscience companies. Sounds like a good idea, right? When you consider the dense concentration of high-powered healthcare business in the region, um, BioEnterprises said that it helped 350 companies in those 20 years. But then in 2017, it found itself in a little bit of hot water. Uh, A 2020 audit found that it had double-billed state and county taxpayers for expenses related to its work bringing tenants to the Global Center for Health Innovation. And it ultimately agreed to pay $127,000 to settle a lawsuit with the county. Getting into a little bit of speculation territory here, but in some ways it sounds like this thing had created some headaches for those involved and to some degree had run its course. All three of the founders independently aid startup companies on their own, so perhaps this level of bureaucracy just wasn't needed anymore to facilitate the kind of cooperation that it was originally intended for. Yeah, maybe. I just I feel like there's more to that story. This was hailed for years as a wonderful thing, and all of a sudden it's just dissolved away. We'll have to keep looking for more details. You're listening today in Ohio. We got time for one more. Remember that carjacking case we talked about a while back with a 14-year-old shooting a woman in Little Italy? And remember how angry prosecutors were when the judge put the now 15-year-old on home confinement pending sentencing rather than locking him up? Lisa, what's the update? Darrell Travis, who is now 15 years old, is currently at large. He failed to appear for his sentencing yesterday. He cut off his ankle monitor and left home Sunday night right before the sentencing. He did plead guilty to five counts of aggravated robbery and felonious assault for a string of brazen carjackings in the University Circle, Case Western Reserve University area. He faces a minimum of 18 years, but the plea deal was calling for 20 to 25 years. So Travis Travis's parents were both at the hearing yesterday. They say they have people trying to find their son. He was free on personal bond despite prosecutor objections and objections from the victims as well. Mike O'Malley, the prosecutor for the county, said this was completely avoidable. And these five incidents started, they ran from December 19th to the 27th in 2021. Four of them were, like I said, in the University Circle area, and one was at the University Heights Target. So he he is off the chain. Well, the judge at the time pointed out that this was the youngest person she'd seen in her courtroom, and she was clearly conflicted. But the prosecutors were arguing the violence that he committed and the risk of him doing something else were too high. The judge better hope they catch him before he harms somebody else, because otherwise people are going to blame her for putting him out there. It's it's a scary thing. You get it, right? If you were 15 years old and facing Mm -hmm. 20 years in prison, you'd be terrified. So you can see why he panicked and ran, but but he's a dangerous guy. I mean, he did shoot somebody. Somebody, right. And he stuck a gun in everybody's face. So yeah, he, he needs to be caught and quickly. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That closes down the Tuesday episode. We'll all be back Wednesday talking about some news, including the lakefront. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast. 